welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. Today, we're diving into the world of healthcare, more specifically, dental care. This is a subject area that we haven't dove into too frequently before, so it's going to be a very informative episode. According to a 2021 survey, the average wait time for a dental visit for someone in New York State with an intellectual or developmental disability is up to two years. As a result, the New York State Academic Dental Centers, NYSADC, set out to create a fellowship for dentists that would put them on the pathway towards supporting patients with disabilities in their careers. In this episode, we talk to Jonathan Tayen, the president and CEO of NYSADC, and Dr. Tung Nguyen, who completed the NYSADC fellowship program. We discuss the barriers that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities face when it comes to dental care, issues with funding, and accessibility issues that can occur. This episode offers an interesting perspective on disability inclusion within healthcare. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I know that you will too, so let's dive right in. Hello, and welcome back to the Assembly Inclusion Podcast. Today, we're talking about the New York State Academic Dental Centers and their new fellowship program, which focuses on providing healthcare for patients with disabilities. I'm joined today by Jonathan Tayen, the president and CEO of NYSADC, and Dr. Tang Nguyen, one of the first fellows to complete the program. So thank you so much for joining us today. Our pleasure having us. So just to kick us off, would each of you mind telling us a little bit about yourselves and your background? So Jonathan Tayen, as, as you noted, I'm the president and CEO of uh, the New York State Academic Dental Centers. Uh, we also have a sister organization, the Associated Medical Schools of New York. I'm the president and CEO of that organization as well. And basically what these two organizations do, we represent the medical and dental schools in New York State, and we run collaborative programs like this one, and we also do advocacy. So we advocate for issues that are important to all of our members, and you know these are things ranging from funding for biomedical research, funding to make sure that we can run programs like this. We also run programs that are aimed at diversifying our healthcare workforce. That's an area we're heavily invested in. And in my own background, I actually started out way back in undergrad in conservation biology, ended up in grad school, though, studying public policy and really got very, very involved in healthcare policy. And really, that's been my focus. So I'm really a policy person who also sort of moonlights as a management and program person, but policy is sort of my core background. I'm Dr. Tung Nguyen. Tough act to follow with Jonathan there. I'm currently the director at Metro Community Health Center, the dental director. I was one of the program's first fellows, I believe, here, kind of just the oversee day-to-day operations for the dentist, making sure everything runs smoothly as often as they can, serving the IDD population, and then working on the front side of what Jonathan does, we implement the policy that he creates and pushes through, making sure those are followed through and met. A little bit about me, I finished school in Nebraska, I know a faraway place, I did dental school there, 
went to Columbia for residency and then did my fellowship at NYU College of Dentistry. But I've been working with the special needs uh, IDD neurodiverse population ever since I've been undergrad, working with, you know, at-risk youth, people on the ASD autism spectrum disorder, Down syndrome, kind of all that. Awesome. Well, thank you both of you for sharing a little bit about yourselves before we actually jump into the discussion of the fellowship program. So actually, before we jump into the logistics and why the fellowship was actually started, I did want to give our listeners a little bit of background at the issue at hand because we haven't covered anything related to healthcare or dental care on the show before, but we're heavily focused on inclusion and making sure that all fields are inclusive. So what are typically some of the obstacles that someone with a disability, especially someone with an intellectual or developmental disability, might face when actually seeking dental care? There's a lot of big ones, but one of the ultimate ones is usually the advocacy. Some A patient with some sort of condition, it's hard for them to tell their caretaker Sometimes they're nonverbal. You know, you and I, we could say, oh, my tooth hurts. I need to go to the dentist or I broke my tooth or something. But most of the time, the patients, they don't, they can't advocate for themselves. That'd be one of the biggest barriers. Finances are always a big thing because, you know, dentistry is expensive. I render treatment every day. I know how expensive it is. And then small things like transportation, making sure that there's access, like, you know, wheelchairs, things like that. It's just generally hard to see a patient or difficult to see a patient that has any kind of these conditions for dentists because the lack of training that the providers have gotten. It wasn't until about 2019 that CODA, which is the accrediting body, made it mandatory that dental schools have to have that in their curriculum, hands-on, live experience, not just like reading up. So those are kind of the biggest challenges. And I would add to that, or maybe just emphasize that the financing component of this is, it's not just sort of a personal financing issue. This is really a societal issue, which is how we choose to allocate our healthcare dollars. A lot of people with with special needs, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, they rely on Medicaid to pay for at least some of their healthcare. And Medicaid reimbursement for dental services is just woefully inadequate. This is something that we sort of collectively as a society, we either prioritize or we don't. And so I think that that's one of the things that's really exacerbated the core problem, because as Tung pointed out, there aren't enough providers, but also when those providers are not paid at a rate that is really compensating them for their time, for the facilities that they're using, that means there are fewer providers than there could be. And one of the things that that does is a lot of people with special needs then end up waiting much longer than they should to actually see a dentist. And so they'll go to dentists at our academic dental centers at one of the six dental schools and the clinics there because there are providers there that know how to treat people with special needs and also because they know that they're they're going to be treated regardless of their ability to pay. But the wait times there can be a year or more. And so you've got people who otherwise maybe they could get treated in their community by a community dentist, but they're waiting a year or more to get access because, again, there's not enough providers who are trained well and we're not reimbursing dentists at the rate they ought to be. 
it's a lot of different factors. It seems like a multifaceted problem between the training, the finances, the advocacy component for the patient themselves. I can see that there's a lot of different barriers that someone would have to face. That must be really challenging. So I assume that that's probably what was part of the inspiration for creating that fellowship. But I did want to talk a little bit about that. So what are actually the requirements of the fellowship? How does someone typically apply? So we actually created this program a couple of years ago because we were actually working on this Medicaid issue as a policy issue. And we were actually lucky enough to get some grant funding from the Mother Cabrini, Cabrini Health Foundation to start some program to address the lack of providers. And so we worked with all of our with faculty at all of our, our dental schools and decided that a year-long fellowship was the best way to really give newly licensed dentists the in-depth training that they needed. We started this program and really what we were aiming at is people like Tom, people who have just come through dental school, done a residency, because in New York, you do need a year of residency in order to get licensed to practice dentistry. Other states you don't, but New York you do. And so we were looking for people who were really just right out of a residency program and who really wanted to devote a good portion of the time when they're in practice into working with people with special needs. And so, you know, we really designed this as an intensive year-long program that when our fellows finished, that they would be ready to go out and practice with patients in their communities. And the other thing we were really looking for, and I think Tom kind of embodies this, we were really looking, especially in our, our first couple of cohorts that we were, you know, Tongue was in our first cohort. We had two fellows. We're currently recruiting our second. We really wanted leaders, right? So people who would help grow this network of dentists in New York State who treat people with special needs. We wanted people who were coming up recently out of dental school who could lead and also inspire people who are in dental school now. And so I think Tung kind of embodies that. And not to put too much weight on your shoulders, Tung, but there you have it. <laughs> I think from a more boots on the ground, trenches level, I'll give you a lowdown of what my first year was like there. So, you know, doing the fellowship, I just want to preface this with saying that doing the fellowship and getting in contact with Jonathan and Dr. Kosinski and everything, it kind of changed the trajectory of my career. Like I said, I've been working with special needs populations since I was an undergrad. I've always had like a spot for them in my heart. Obviously, treating them as a dentist is different than hanging out with them in college and teaching them and stuff like that. But when I did my residency at Columbia, my director had noticed that I wasn't scared of seeing any type of patients. I had a blind patient that loved me. I had multiple patients in wheelchairs. I was kind of the resident that didn't have a problem taking them on. I was never, never scared of that. So my director afforded me the fellowship. And I was like, well, you know, I never really thought about anything doing like that because I was going to go, you know, open up a crazy, huge boutique office at, on Madison Avenue. But anyway, I, I take a look and I apply. So you do have to have a year of residency or, you know, completing a year of residency. And then, you know, we went through the application process. I'm not sure if it's still the exact same or if you guys have refined it at all. But you apply, you have like the CV, resume, the typical stuff. And then you answer some personal statement-like questions. And then you do the interview with Jonathan. And then I ended up doing it at NYU. And there I met Dr. Kaczynski, and we can talk about that later. <laughs> what a typical day looked like was I would see patients from a clinical standpoint, treating them and assessing what they need. And then the really cool thing about NYU, and shout out to Dr. DeWade, who is the anesthesiologist there, uh, they have two OR bays 
on that floor, which is a brand new floor. One of the biggest challenges for these patients is getting treated in totality. And at NYU, they have two operating rooms, and we could take some patients down completely under general anesthesia and do all the dental work, make a huge impact right then and there in those four to eight hours or whatever when we're in the OR. So my days would be split between doing a typical clinic day and then doing the OR. And then, you know, also educating the current dental students at NYU, the third and fourth years that rotate through that floor. Because that floor, it's called the Oral Health Center for People with Disabilities. So the, all the patients there would be defined as special needs. And the dental students would rotate through there and help the faculty out. So I guess I teach a lot of them some kind of cool tips and tricks. And maybe Jonathan knows this, maybe he doesn't. But when you work with special needs patients, the rule book kind of goes out the window. Like whatever they teach you in dental school, whatever they teach you in medical school, that kind of goes out the window with special needs. There's a specific rule book for special needs, which is no rule book. So that's kind of what my day looks like. I could totally relate to that. My background is education. Everything you learn in undergrad, it was like, nope. All right. Well. <laughs> Doesn't apply. <laughs> we'll learn day to day. So assuming that every day is probably a little bit different based on mm-hmm. the patient and their needs and what they need for that specific day. So uh, you did mention the part about teaching. So part of the program is actually you require them to teach the third and fourth year dental students. So they have that disability training requirement as part of their training. Yeah. Okay. That's great. So that's great. You're not only getting the hands-on experience yourself, but then also imparting everything that you've learned onto a new, the next, you know, group of dentists that are coming up through the system. The limited knowledge I gain, the limited knowledge I have. I try to, I try to pass whatever I have on. (laughs) In addition, I I think it's also about inspiring people and letting people know that this is a viable part of their career or a viable career path for them. As Tung mentioned, it was 2020 that the accrediting body that accredits all the dental schools in North America, they require that all dental students have some clinical experience working with special needs patients. So now we've got all of these students now coming through dental school who are seeing patients and who may be inspired that this is something they can do. And then being able to interact with someone like Tung and, and the other fellows in this program I think really just gives them a a very concrete sense that this is something that they can do. We've heard from a lot of people that this is something that they want to do. They just don't necessarily see how they can get there because unfortunately, special care dentistry is not um, a recognized specialty in dentistry right now. And so there is a national movement to maybe address that. I think we're probably years away from getting there. But if this were a recognized specialty, I think people would have a more prescribed pathway that they could follow. There isn't one. And so if you're really passionate about this, you need to figure out how to make this work. And I think having people like Tung, where you can see the path that he followed, that helps you get there faster and helps you actually get there at all. So we we thought that the, the teaching component was really important. And then research too, I think, you know, there's a lot of work that still needs to get done here. And there's, there's different types of research to address, to try and understand and how to better address these disparities is really important. I just wanted to kind of quickly piggyback on Jonathan's point about the career field. We have NYU students rotate through Metro Community Health Centers, where I'm at right now. We have NYU students rotate through our locations. And 
most of the time they're just like, yeah, I mean, it'd be cool to treat some of these patients, but you don't typically, when you graduate, you don't go looking for a, a specific position that has this. You just kind of look to be a dentist. And, you know, meeting Dr. Kaczynski at NYU, he actually put me in contact with Dr. Rita Bellello, who is the former dental director in my position. She's now our CEO. Shout out to Dr. Bellello. And Nellie, she is the COO. Shout out, Nellie. They approached me after meeting Dr. Kaczynski, and they gave me a very valid career path where I can do this and, you know, make a decent living because, you know, we all know New York's really expensive. Now I have a trajectory of my career that I can envision. And being able to be in my position and have a flourishing career where I still get to do everything I love. I still get to do dentistry. Not every patient we see is IDD. I still get to do all our quote unquote normal dentistry as well as serve our IDD population. I can also tell the students up and coming saying, hey, you know, I, I was put in this position because I met a lot of great people through this field. This is a very valuable career path that you can take that is equally comparable to what you would, you know, break your back doing in private practice. My workload is a lot, is a, you know, I would say my workload is clinically is a lot easier than a typical private practice dentist who sees 20, 25 patients a day, five days a week for 52 weeks a year. My workload isn't anywhere near that clinically. Administratively, it is more, but now that I can actually tell the students that, hey, you can actually do this because we don't have that pathway that Jonathan was talking about. I'm sure that's really important. I didn't realize that there wasn't a specialty for working with people with special needs or disabilities in dentistry. So that's great that they can look to you then, Tongue, and your experiences going straight through to the fellowship and now and be able to say, like, this is a pathway I could take. I appreciate the fact that you said New York State has a requirement of the hands-on component. I didn't realize that most places do not have that. Well, so now all, all dental schools in the U.S. do have that okay. requirement. But before 2020, there was no requirement that it was a clinical experience, right? There was a didactic component where everybody had to learn about special care dentistry, but, but didn't act necessarily have any experience in treating people directly or even really being around people um, with, with special needs. And so, so that's a new requirement. And so we potentially have all of these you know, people coming through dental school now who have seen this, who, who may be inspired. And I think it's really kind of incumbent on all of us to, to kind of tap into that and, and make sure that we're providing experiences where they can continue that. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that's great that they're getting that hands-on component to learn a little bit more about how to work with somebody who might have that disability. I did want to ask specifically, I know everybody is different and every, every disability looks different for different people and they have different needs, but typically what types of accommodations are, or support are provided to somebody who might have a disability when they're receiving dental care? Because I think Tung, you had mentioned the advocacy part is difficult, sure. but what types of accommodations are typical uh, for a patient? So first of all, bigger rooms, because obviously some patients will have wheelchairs and, you know, if they can't transfer into the dental chair, then we got to see them in their wheelchair. I joke about this with Dr. Kaczynski sometimes. Ever since I did the fellowship, I think I've seen a thousand different types of wheelchairs. I know which ones tilt back. I know which ones don't. So when I see the patient, I'm like, oh man, this wheelchair is going to hurt my back today. <laughs> and then a big thing for our ASD population, they're generally kids that we see at NYU. We have a sensory room where we could dim the lights, change the light colors. It has some like cool visual stuff, weighted blankets, things like that, that was sanitized regularly. That the, the room where a lot of the children, a lot of the younger adolescents that are on the spectrum, they could go there unwind before their dental appointment because 
the biggest thing with with that population is the sensory overload going to the dentist you hear the drills you hear you know the cubicles that are kind of stacked next to each other the lights are really bright so that's one of the major accommodations that we have for kind of the ASD population and anybody really just more targeted towards them and we have that here at Metro Community Health too we have like a little sensory room Lighting is a big thing in the dental operatories. We kind of make, make sure we can control the lighting, the sounds, the noises, just any variable that we can control. We have a papoose board for some of our patients who, you know, because there's a lot of different, there's a spectrum of intellectual developmental disabilities. Patients who, they kind of just flail their arms a little bit. They put themselves and us in danger. So we have a papoose board that can restrain them, not restrict them. We're not using lethal force by any means. It just kind of keeps their elbows and hands in place. But when we say papoos, people think back in the 90s, we're like, you know, they do some crazy stuff. But no, it just kind of holds them. It kind of keeps them safe, keeps us safe. Those are kind of the big accommodations I can think of. Jonathan, you need any other specific ones? Well, I think you mentioned it, but I think time is probably the biggest one, right? So getting people comfortable in that environment, in the dental operatory, and some people, frankly, require multiple visits, right? So they they may not actually get any work done on their first visit. They may just need the visit where they get to see the place, get to know the dentist and, and, and some of the staff. So I think time is probably the biggest accommodation across the board. And the way our reimbursement structure is, is set up. It, that's not something that's factored into this. We're still mostly a fee-for-service um, healthcare system. And so, you know, people, our dentists are reimbursed for a specific procedure, but they're not reimbursed for time that somebody just frankly might need. I think investing that time though really pays dividends because then you get somebody who's comfortable. They can come see you more regularly and do more preventive care. And then they don't end up in situations where, you know, if they if they go a long time without any regular care, that's when they end up in hospital ORs and need to be sedated because they have multiple issues that need to be addressed. And those issues have gotten much worse over time. All of that's very costly. And so I think if we actually did this <clears throat> investment of time and more preventive care, it probably saves us money collectively over time than the way we, we've been doing it for a long time, which is to kind of ignore this care. And then they end up in the most expensive place you can possibly deliver healthcare. So I think it's kind of a, a shifting our mindset and, and giving them what they need and giving them more time to get comfortable in that environment. Just to go off on that, Jonathan, the timing is a very interesting concept because these patients require an accommodation of time. So they need more time blocked out or allotted for them. But most of that time is utilized getting the patient prepped for the procedure because the, the patient really only has a much smaller window of tolerable time. So even though we book an hour and a half for this patient, trying to make sure this patient, we can get all this, everything done, you know, that the patient may, you know, however they wake up that day, they may be a little, whatever medi medication they have to take or whatever, they may have a smaller window for me to get things done. The typical thing is I'll see a new patient and maybe they haven't seen the dentist for four or five years. And it's all these things. It just sounds, seems like a mountain, but you got to climb it slowly. You and I and Jonathan, we probably go to the dentist, you know, at least once a year, twice a year, you know, every six months or so. What I'm prescribing to a lot of these patients is coming back every three months, it's twice as frequent. We're, we're trying to see them four, four times a year as opposed to just the two. And that four times a year you know, even though we're seeing them twice as often, it really prevents the preventative maintenance model really prevents, you know, them not being seen for five years, ending up in the OR very costly. But it's really cheap compared to that to have them see us every three months. And 
then that time is tied into reimbursement because if we can get them, if, if we can get these visits paid for, or, you know, they can get covered twice as frequently, even though they're seen being twice as frequently for cleanings and maintenance, we're not spending anywhere near the amount of money getting them into the hospital. So time is like a very interesting concept for this patient population. Something I hadn't thought about, but it, make, it does make more sense to have shorter visits more frequently as opposed to a more expensive OR-based procedure yeah. later on. And I could see that being a lot less stressful then for the patient too, because they're used to it. They've been through it. They go through it every couple of months, as opposed to the intimidation factor of you know, being under anesthesia, being in the OR, that type of experience. So I can see that even for the patient being just more beneficial. There's so many factors I hadn't considered with this topic. I did want to ask, so once the fellowship is finished, I know it's the year-long intensive with the hands-on training and everything. What is expected from the fellows after that year is complete? So the way we designed this fellowship is that we covered the salary of the fellow during that year. Uh, while this is a learning experience, they're also dentists who are actually treating people. And so, of course, they're on salary. We support their salary during the fellowship year. And then we ask for a commitment to stay in New York for just at least a year after the fellowship and work at least some of their time, at least one day a week with patients with special needs. So that can look like, you know, any number of things. And our fellows can work in very specific settings like Tong is doing. Well, we have another fellow who is spending actually quite a bit of his time at the Hudson Valley Cerebral Palsy Association, but it could also be in a federally qualified healthcare shortage area. But basically we want them to stay in New York and treat people who otherwise have access issues. And so that's really all we ask. And so Tong is in that phase and you know, we think this is important because again, the, the need is ubiquitous. The need is everywhere, but we're a New York focused organization. And so we're really trying to address the workforce issues in New York. And so that's why we ask for that commitment. Oh yeah, of course. That makes a lot, that makes a lot of sense. You want to continue to support the community that you were learning alongside during that fellowship year. So that makes sense to have that continuation within New York. I wanted to ask specifically about program collaborations within the fellowship. Is there any type of promotion to promote more awareness about the issues facing people with disabilities with dental care? Is that part of the fellowship at all? Or is there any work being done in that area? There is definitely an element of this that we do need to sort of increase the profile of this career path, right? Again, mm -hmm. since this isn't a recognized specialty, I think we definitely have some work to do to make people realize that this is something that they can do either full-time or par make part of their larger practice. And so all six dental schools in New York State are, are part of this project, but we have a lot of outreach that we do to national organizations. There, there are a few national organizations who kind of specialize in this. We also have good relationships with the New York State Dental Association, when we have a new cycle open, they help us get the word out there. Specialty hospitals in New York, where there's a real focus on oral health care for people with IDD, and we try and partner with them as much as we can. There's a large network of people who know that this is a problem that needs to get addressed, and that this is one solution among many. I think having partners to help get the word out and help elevate the profile of this kind of work is, is hugely important. 
Oh, definitely. I figured there had to be some type of collaboration and some kind of awareness promotion, but I'm glad to see that you were able to clarify that. And my last question, I wanted to kind of split up to address the successes of the program, both personally and from the fellowship standpoint. So Tong, I'll ask you first, what do you think have been the most important factors that you've learned from the fellowship and how do you think it has improved your practice as a dentist? I think it's a lot of perspective and compassion. I want to, that means like, I didn't have it before, but I just like a refined, refined version of it. We kind of all know these problems exist, but I'll be honest, I live in my own bubble. You know, I live in Manhattan. I'm a young guy. I like to go out, do my own thing. These aren't problems I think about every day because they just don't really affect me. And I think that a lot of us do that. After seeing and treating a lot of these patients and the fellowship giving me that opportunity and where it's taken me, when I map out my commute to work, I don't have to worry about like, oh, I have to take this subway because they have an elevator and then I got to take this one because as a ramp, I just go. But patients, you know, they're like, oh yeah, sorry, I had to take this subway, take this bus, take this here to get here, you know, and just that, that enlightening perspective for me to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding towards whatever someone's going through, you know. I think in New York, it's easy to kind of just like brush people off, walk past, things like that. And it's kind of that kindness factor that the fellowship really instilled in me. Not that I wasn't kind before, but now I have a renewed and specific understanding for this patient population. So, you know, besides all the clinical stuff, yeah, cool. I learned how to start IVs and, you know, put patients to sleep and tranquilize patients to get them in the water. Yeah, that's fine. I learned how to do some cool techniques, you know, things like that. But really it's what I got from the fellowship is, is being able to re-understand and redefine my concept on kindness, compassion, and understanding. I think that's a great perspective. And that's something that, as I do each and every episode on here, I, I feel like I learned something more about people's daily lives that I hadn't thought about, like even like today, everything with the financial and the, like, the Medicaid and everything. I'm like, that's not something I've had to worry about or deal with, but it's something I didn't think about. And now they have a little bit more empathy and understanding about people's perspective. So I totally understand what you mean when you say that. And then Jonathan, I just wanted to know what do you think have been the biggest successes and outcomes of the fellowship so far? And how do you think it's working to impact the overall problem of the access to dental care? So I think uh, the biggest successes are really just the people that, that we work with. So, so both the fa faculty members at the dental schools who we work with on a very regular basis to Put this together. Tung mentioned Dr. Kaczynski at NYU. He's, he's one of them, but we've got a core group of faculty members who are just amazing, but also the fellows and the people that we've been interviewing and talking to who want to get into this fellowship program. It's just really inspiring to see people who care this much. And, you know, it's not easy. I think Tung did a really great job articulating sort of the compassion that's necessary. So when people come out of dental school, on average, across the country, the, the average student debt load is about 250K. And so, you know, people are thinking about having to pay that back. There are much more lucrative things to do in dentistry than special care dentistry. And so, you know, people really need to feel this deeply in order to take this path, which is why I think we want to do everything we can to help them whether it's through salary support or other things. The other thing I would add here though, and maybe this is more of a, a lesson, I think the, the, uh, the thing we're looking at now is, is trying to reach a broader spectrum of dentists who may not be able to devote an entire year full-time, but, but maybe do want to, to see some patients 
with special needs in their practice, but, but can't do a full year fellowship. And so we're thinking about now, are there other ways that we can bring more people into this process? They won't have the same depth of knowledge that tongue has, but still they can help do that outreach, do that regular preventive care in the communities for a number of people. And so we're thinking about how to evolve the program so that we can bring more, more people potentially into it. And that was perfect because I was going to ask you about the continuation of the program and if there were any adaptations or changes as the program continued. So that's a great point that you mentioned about the transition to possibly still providing that education, but maybe not as intensive as the one-year fellowship program. Was there anything else related to the fellowship that you're planning out for the future? So I think that's mostly what we're focused on is, again, bringing more people into this. I think the other thing is I mentioned outreach and awareness. I mean, as I said, there's a a network both within New York and and more broadly. But I think the other part of this that we are working on is bringing more public awareness to this and also more awareness among policymakers. So I mentioned earlier that our first year of the fellowship was supported by the Mother Cabrini Health Foundation. We actually now have funds from the New York State Legislature that they are supporting this program and the expansion of this program. And that, you know, Tung was giving a number of shout outs to to people earlier. I have to give a shout out to Senator John Mannion, who chairs the the Senate Committee on Disabilities. He really has been a champion in bringing this to the fore in Albany. And I think we we just need to do more education there because I think people aren't aware that this is an issue. And I think when people become aware they recognize this is something we have to deal with, but most people, it doesn't even occur to them that this is a problem. So, you know, I think in addition to expanding the program, I think we also want to expand people's awareness of it. I can see that being a very important piece of it. I'm sure people aren't aware of some of the difficulties that people are facing with trying to access dental care, healthcare, and things like that. I just want to thank you both, Jonathan and Tung, so much for talking about the fellowship program uh, through the New York State Academic Dental Centers and both of your experiences. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on this issue. Like I said, this is an issue we haven't covered. So it was really interesting to get to hear about all the different aspects of providing this more inclusive health care and dental care specifically. So thank you so much, both of you, for your time and telling us about this today. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate that you had us on and that you're helping kind of shine a spotlight on this. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. I just want to say the very last thing I want to say is being at Metro Community Health Center, I just want to give like a short plug because, you know, this is to give access to anybody that needs any kind of oral health care. And Metro Community Health Centers, we have four locations, downtown Brooklyn, Staten Island, Manhattan, the Bronx. We don't just offer dental. We're a clinic, FQHC, so we offer everything from medical, OBGYN, neurology, things like that, and dental as well, behavior therapy, psych, all that stuff. We just want more people to know that we exist and for people to, for anybody that has whatever special needs, whatever conditions to come in and feel like they'll be heard, they'll be treated here with respect and kindness as we all try to uh, advocate. And Jonathan, you know, has been an important person in my life. He may not think so, but he gave me the opportunity to do this. He helped me. There were some, there were some hiccups during the, during the fellowship getting into there, but we fixed it all. And he's been, he's been an important and integral person in my career. So a shout out to Jonathan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembly Inclusion Podcast. 
I hope the information in this episode taught you something new, gave you a new idea, or showcased a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.